Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. We have been in this series going through the gospel according to Mark. Um, Caden took about five more minutes of the worship slot than I thought he was going to this morning. And so I was like, Taylor, you're not doing announcements. We'll skip them. Celebration Sunday's next weekend. Wild Man was awesome last night. What else do you want to know about? That's, that's what we have going on. <laughs> Summer is here, baby, okay? Um, but for real, I, I, I do have just a lot uh, on my heart to talk about this morning. This passage is going to be uh, encouraging for a lot, difficult for some, and I think it's going to touch the, the tendermost places of our humanity for almost all of us this morning. We're going to be talking about Jesus' teaching on divorce. And so obviously that, even of its, as I say that word, it probably just rings uh, in some of your guys' ears, even now. And so I, I know, I know for a fact, um, personally, talking with some marriages that are just in tough places right now, um, I, I know talking with other friends and close family members that there, there's almost not one person sitting in front of me right now who is not impacted by divorce in some way. And so what we're going to do is we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to just, just come and to be encouraging and to be whatever it is that we need this morning, because I, I could not anticipate every need in this room right now. But by the grace of God and by the power of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, he can meet us in every situation we're in right now. Amen? Amen. And so let's, let's pray um, and let's just ask the Holy Spirit to come all the more and to meet us in this time now as we study his word. Jesus, we just, uh, we open ourselves up to you right now. And in the midst of a, a touchy topic, one that's full with emotion and maybe anger, um, despair, or or just grief, Lord. We invite you to come and, and, to, and to touch and apply the healing balm of your gospel in this place today. Um, Jesus, we, we look to you and we trust you in all the things that we do. And so even as we give tithes and offerings this morning, we pray that uh, any resources given here would be used um, and stewarded well uh, to bring about the most glory for your name that we can imagine. And Lord, we just ask for you to rest on um, Pat Sokol, Pat Sokol's church, um, Beggar's Gate, and uh, I just think about what a kind man he is, what a gentle man he is. I pray that he would encourage his flock well this morning, um, and that your presence would do everything that you intend to do there as well as here. We serve a big God who can be in many places at once and who can meet many needs at once. And so we invite you, Lord, to come and to do your work this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, sorry to kind of bring the vibe down a little bit, but I want us to be uh, attentive this morning because... This is not just a teaching on divorce. I was really tempted, honestly, as I was seeing this passage coming to, to maybe make a bigger teaching out of the, uh, Jesus' teaching on gender or maybe Jesus' teaching on marriage and homosexuality and the things of that nature that are going on in our culture today. Uh, and I couldn't possibly uh, teach on all of that. And I just want to let you know, before we jump into this passage today, that there is coming a series, uh, hopefully in the beginning of next year, where we are going to go basically all the way in, um, as far as the Bible goes in, on topics like homosexuality, LGBTQ community, um, what marriage means, the definition of marriage, um, all of those different topics that I know uh, we are up against in our over, overly sexualized culture constantly right? And so we're going to talk about all those different issues uh, because I, I, cannot, I cannot equip us to the length that we need um, in marriage, right? It's a huge relationship. It's a huge deal. I can't equip us with everything we need in this 40 minutes, but there is coming a day and we're pouring a lot of research and time into a series coming where we will hopefully uh, dive into that topic uh, full, full send, as the kids are saying these days, all right? So, but for today, 
like I said, I was tempted to kind of veer off into the weeds, but really this is a teaching in Mark and to be faithful, what Mark is talking about and Jesus is talking about here is to talk about the topic of divorce. And so we're gonna walk through this today. And, and like I said, by the grace of God, this is not gonna be a condemning message or a judgmental message. I hope that you do not walk out of here feeling ashamed or embarrassed in any way, but that you feel encouraged and loved by Jesus Christ. And so with that, let's jump into the reading today. Uh, we're gonna start in Matthew chapter 10. And we're going to go into verse 1. It reads that Jesus, he, he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him. So just know, every time you see that question, the Pharisees aren't, they're not looking to learn something. They're trying to get Jesus into a pickle, right? They're not actually asking him questions so that they might be enlightened. They're trying to get Jesus in trouble. It's fascinating, actually, the, the context or the backdrop where this teaching happens is in this region where Herod Antipas had, had just executed John the Baptist. You can read about that in Mark chapter 6. Uh, he had just had John the Baptist executed. Why was John the Baptist executed by Herod? Because John the Baptist said that his marriage was illegitimate. He said that you are having this adulterous relationship with this person and and. So they are trying to catch Jesus in a region where the king of that region might take notice. So they're always trying to get Jesus in a way that he might be uh, brought to judgment, brought to death. So that is the backdrop where this sits itself. And the Pharisees themselves really on the topic of divorce are split into two different camps. Um, I'm not gonna go all the way into this, but, but basically there is a liberal camp and there is a conservative camp. Who knew? It's been going on all along, right? <laughs> Amazing. Basically, the very liberal camp would take Moses' words in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, you can read it in verse 1, where it says, if, anything, if the wife does anything offensive, the man can divorce him, or anything shameful. And there was a liberal camp that took that to mean, man, even if she made you a meal you didn't like, even if she did something, like if she spoke in a way in public that you didn't like, then you had grounds for divorce. Then there was a more conservative camp that said, no, that, what that means, what Moses is writing there, is that it is only in the case of adultery that you can leave a marriage. So again, there's these two different camps and they're trying, again, not to get information out of Jesus. They're trying to get him in trouble. And let's watch as our savior ninjas them like he often does. <laughs> the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So lots going on in this passage today. I want to break it down maybe as simply as I can with four points. The first point is that God designed marriage to be beautiful. That is the first thing that we take away from this passage is that uh, marriage was not man's idea. There is no union of two people that exists by accident. What God therefore has joined together 
Therefore, God is orchestrating and putting people together. And this is something that is holy and profound. As in, it is not just two people that become uh, cohabitating or roommates, but they are now uh, brought into union with one another to become actually one flesh. That, that simply in the Hebrew, what it's trying to say is two become one. Uh, two that you could divide into equal parts becomes one, which is indivisible. So now these, these two people have been, have been brought together, this co-mingling of two souls brought into one. This is a holy and sacred thing that God designed and intended to be beautiful, to be beautiful. What this means for every marriage in the room right now is that your marriage is the most important relationship in your life. It is the most important relationship in your life. It is the person in which you should be pursuing more than any other person. It is, it is the place that you should be going to confide, to trust, to be encouraged. Like that person, that is not where you get your value. That is not where you get your worth. But as you enter into that relationship now, that relationship becomes your most precious human relationship that you have in a way that would cause you to forsake all any, any other relationship that is really robbing from that relationship because it is, it is that critical. And it is not just coincidental that two people would find themselves married. There are no accidents in this. God has designed this to happen. Um, I, I, Katie and I were talking about this message. Um, obviously, she was like, so what are, what are you going to say? You know, like in this way that's like, are you going to out me and you with anything like that? And really, no, like I don't have any intentions of that. But what she brought up was, it's interesting how in life, your world can be completely on fire. You can lose a job. Finances can be questionable. You can have tension with your kids. You can have all these other things going on. But if your marriage is solid, life is good, right? Like, man, Katie and I have been through some seasons where life has been hard. We like, didn't know where money was going to come from. We, we were making different decisions about things. But because our relationship was good, it felt good. Things felt okay. But how many of you know the inverse is also true? Like if, if everything in your life is going perfectly as you could have possibly imagined, but your marriage is difficult or your marriage is struggling, then life is hard. And that's because this is more than just some, uh, this some man-made concocted relationship. No, this is a holy union. God bringing two people together. And it's important to note, uh, there is not, you hear this all the time in our air today, that it's like, uh, um, I don't want to like date myself here, but what's the Tom Cruise movie where it's like, I love you, you complete me. Jerry Maguire, right? That's a terrible idea. That's terrible theology. Like two broken people coming together into union does not make one whole person. It just makes two broken people in a relationship with each other. So we don't come into marriage going like, oh my gosh, uh, like, you know, you have these strengths and I have these strengths and you're good at this and I'm good at that. And, and we kind of have these things. We blend each other out. How many of y'all know? Like those, those differences often create friction, not help. Oh, come on, y'all gonna leave me up here alone today like that? Really? <laughs> I guess when it gets most difficult at times is when you have these competing strengths, these competing things that you're good at. It is not two perfect people coming into union. It's not two imperfect people becoming perfect. It is hopefully what Ecclesiastes writes about, what Solomon writes about, is that there's this cord of three strands that's not easily broken, that, that together with the Holy Spirit, we can become who God intends us to be as one flesh, as one flesh. So I think the mistake that we make oftentimes with marriage is we think of it as, as, um, as, as companionship is maybe the first way. I hear this, attend a wedding sometime. If you attend a wedding sometime that's not, that's not Christian in its nature, you will hear a lot of pledges to the relationship. And it makes the companionship the center focus of, of, the, uh, of the relationship. Or what you can get into is you have uh, marriage that's consumeristic. Like, and this is, this is so easy to bleed into, even in the church, where we think that the, that the marriage exists really to fulfill my needs. 
we live in a day and an age where, where the needs of the self are the utmost priority. And so we, we look for we look for her to make us happy. We look for him to give us everything we've wanted. We, we have this kind of romanticized fairy tale version of marriage that just exists to fulfill all of my needs. And that, that's not biblical either. The picture here that Jesus gives us is a marriage that is covenantal in its nature. A marriage that, that commits, like you don't, you don't have your vows where you just say, hey, I'm gonna do my best and hope for the best. No, you say in sickness and in health, like for better or for worse until death do us part right? And, and in that language that we're using in so many marriage ceremonies, it is covenantal in nature in that even if you fail, even if I fail, we are, we are already planning to, 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 to like wade through those seasons of failure. And so it is covenantal. Marriage was designed to be beautiful because it is a reflection of God's love for his people. And so we see this in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is writing about marriage. He's given some instruction to, to men and to women, to husbands and to wives. And he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Again, this is reaching all the way back to Genesis, where in Genesis, what you have is you have all these beautiful dualities that are happening. You have the, the heavens and the earth, the sea and the land, the fish and the, and the animals on land. Like you have all these things that complement each other, the sun and the moon. And you have male and female. And so for all of the talking that's out there right now where it says, oh, well, Jesus didn't even really talk about homosexuality. Well, okay, maybe he never used that term specifically, but he does talk about what marriage is. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Marriage is between a man and a woman. And the other thing that goes with that is that there, there are two genders, male and female, two complementing genders that exist next to each other. That, that, that one, is not, one is not better than, one is not more value than, but they are, two, they are two different kinds of people given to one another in order to fulfill what God has called them to do, which is the great commission to go into the world and to reflect God's image into his, into his nature. This is given to male and female. This is like, like Adam and Eve only had one choice, each other, right? Like that, that was it. And, and that is meant to represent this lifelong union that was God's design for marriage. It was God's design that, that marriage would be a one-time thing, a lifelong union to one another. In Ephesians, what it talks about, it says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul acknowledges, he says, this mystery is profound. The, the two becoming one, it's profound. It's not something that I can just grasp and explain like, well, yeah, they're, they're basically roommates, right? No, it's, it's a profound mystery. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church is the verse right before this. As in he gave himself up for her. Where, where men, husbands, what we're called to do is to love our wives in this self-sacrificing way where we lay ourselves down for the sake of our bride. And in the same way, uh, the, the bride is called, like your, your, your role, wives, is to love Christ and to, and to submit to him. That's what his words are in Ephesians chapter five. And it's not that the, the man is gonna be this domineering, demanding all these different things, but it is in this way that we, as the church, submit ourselves to Christ that we can understand that passage. That we're submitting ourselves to someone who is good, who is ruling after us in our, in our favor. We are desiring to be more like him and desiring to follow him. And it is that mutual respect, that mutual give and take that makes marriages beautiful the way God designed them because God is most reflected in his goodness in a marriage that is thriving. 
Like I just, as much as this verse creates some tension in us sometimes, the, the wives submit to your husbands, I have never seen a godly man and a godly woman do this in a way that it doesn't look beautiful. Does that verse get abused? Absolutely. Verses get abused all the time. Men love to take things out of context. Women love to take things out of context. People love to take things out of context, right? But when, but when you have a, a man who is wholly set on Christ, following after him, and he's seeking to love his wife and to love his family well, that, that doesn't go poorly. And when you have a wife that's in that same relationship where she is, where she is just honoring her husband, respecting her, championing after, or championing after him, I'm sorry, that, that just, it doesn't result the way the world wants to paint it, Right? And what this union is meant to point us to is the union between God and his church. That there would be this love that's so beautiful in a relationship, so, so real in a relationship that it actually demonstrates the love of God to the world around us. That's what marriage is designed to do. Two people loving each other in a self-sacrificing way in order to show how Jesus loves us, even in spite of our imperfections, right? So marriage was designed to be beautiful, but it's no mystery in the room today that, that we're just not that good at this. R Amen? And so because of that, the second point is that broken hearts cause marriages to break. Now, I don't mean this in like a lovesick kind of way. Like, oh, you broke my heart. You know, like it's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is what Jesus refers to in this verse. He says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment as in, had sin never entered into this world, there would be no such thing as divorce. If sin had never entered this world, there would be no such thing as divorce. There wouldn't be. Now, every divorce is the byproduct of sin. It just is. It is. Whether it's selfishness, whether it's sin that was done to us, whether that's sin that originates in us, all, all marriages that fail you can point back to some sin somewhere. And even though fault may lie on one party or another more, that's true. There's never a, par a party that is guiltless in the equation, right? Because everybody is imperfect. So he says, Moses gave you this commandment because of your hardness of heart. In other words, because of the brokenness in humanity, God gave certain provisions for marriages to end. And so that's what we're going to get into in just a sec. Because divorce may be an option, but it is not a solution. That's the third point. Divorce may be an option. As in, there's two reasons the Bible gives us that, that a divorce is allowable, but it is not always preferential. Okay? So here we go. Mark chapter 10. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus in this moment, again, he's confronting these Pharisees that, that their lives are rife with divorce. Malachi ends with God saying that he hates divorce. He hates what it does to people. He hates what it does to families. He hates divorce. He doesn't want to see it happen. It was not a part of his good, right design. And yet, because of the brokenness that we experience in humanity, divorce does happen at times. It happens. And the Pharisees have so gotten caught in this liberal thinking, again, from that day, to say that like, oh man, well, I'm just looking for any excuse that I can to divorce my wife. And they're using the word of God to justify it. And Jesus comes in and he corrects it saying, whoever commits, whoever divorces his wife commits adultery. If he goes and remarries, if, if they go and be with another, they commit adultery. Matthew gives us, gives us a little more expanded teaching in his parallel passage on this same teaching from Jesus. So Matthew 19, 9 says, and this is the, this is the expanded clause here. 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now that word there is porneia. It sounds a lot like the word pornography. And it doesn't just mean illicit images on, online or on, on the whatever. Like what it means is any illicit sexual act outside of marriage. And so I think it was Tim Keller that as he's kind of explaining what except for sexual immorality looks like, it's, it's anything that you would imagine your spouse doing and you would be horrified. You can feel what it is then, right? And so Jesus gives this clause here. It says, except for sexual immorality. What I find fascinating is that Jesus delivers this teaching in Matthew right after the parable of the unforgiving servant where he's talking about how rich in mercy we are meant to be. And so you might be thinking to yourself, how, how could a marriage ever be reconciled after adultery is committed on behalf of one of the parties? And I would say only by the beautiful demonstration of God's great grace towards us. Once you understand how much God has forgiven you, then you can bestow forgiveness on another. And so if you, if you, think, that, if you think that just because adultery happens that you have to divorce, that's, that's not always the case. And, and I would pray and beg that, man, if there, is, if there is an honest, broken spirit by the one who committed this sin, who committed adultery, if they are genuinely repentant, as in they're not just sorry about getting caught, but they're legitimately sorry and they're broken up and busted up, then what we should consider is we should consider how the redemptive work of the gospel can play itself out in that situation and the marriage can be reconciled. But again, Jesus says, this is a situation where the marriage can end and he allows for it. Paul is actually gonna give us an additional reason that divorce can happen and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter seven. 1 Corinthians chapter seven, starting verse 10, it says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Now, what Paul's about to do, he's saying, he's saying, hey, I've given you a lot of my own encouragements, my own thoughts, which are still in scripture, so they're still good. But he makes the caveat here to say, hey, this isn't, a, this isn't from my brain. This is from what Jesus said. He's quoting back to what Jesus had taught on. And he says, I'm not the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Some of you in this room right now are living with, married to someone who is either uh, become an, un an unbeliever throughout your marriage, or you have become a believer since they got married. And the call from the Apostle Paul right here is saying, if that unbelieving person is still living with you, if they're still honoring the, the marriage contract that you entered into, then what you should do is you should keep living with them, keep encouraging them, keep demonstrating the love of God to them, because you don't know if you're going to be the one who ends up bringing the gospel into their heart. So he says, keep pressing in. If they're still in the marriage, then you're still in the marriage. Keep on at it. You don't know if you're gonna be the one who brings their heart back to Jesus. You're not, you don't know if you're gonna be the one who actually gets to show Jesus to this person in the way that you are loving them, right? But then he gives us this verse in 1 Corinthians 7, 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved for God has called you to peace. So what this means is that if your spouse becomes an unbeliever or is an unbeliever, 
and they at one point decide they are going to walk away from the marriage, then what Paul actually recommends that you do, again, he's not even just saying this is allowable. He's saying this is preferential. He says, you should let them walk. You should let them walk for God has called you to live in peace. For God has called you to live in peace. Doesn't mean that you pursue a divorce. Doesn't mean that you pursue separation. But if they choose it, then you let them go. You let them go. Now, I think like for all of us in the room, maybe, maybe not all of us, but for all of us in the room, when I was getting through and I was studying this and it's like, okay, what, what does the Bible say about divorce? And in what situations is it okay? Um, one of the things that you notice is missing right away is abusive situations, right? Is anyone else not thinking that? Like, so what, what about in situations of physical, verbal, financial, spiritual abuse? All of those things are real. Here's what I would say to that situation specifically. First of all, if you are an abuser, if you are domineering over your spouse, if you are treating your spouse or your kids in a certain way, you need to repent immediately. You need to turn from that wicked behavior. Now, for the sake of your own soul and for the sake of the souls around you, you need to quit it. You need to quit it. And if you are in an abusive situation, I would encourage you as quickly as possible to find a trusted brother or sister in Christ and I would encourage you to maybe even find a pastor, find someone here, come talk to me. God hates what's happening to you if you are caught in an abusive situation right now. God hates it. He hates what's happening to you. He hates that that act is being committed against you because he loves you and he's for you and he will not forsake you. And I think the way that we can reconcile Paul and Jesus' teaching on divorce and abuse is to say, if somebody is abusing another, they are demonstrating by their acts that they do not have a saving faith that exists in them. Their actions do not validate their faith. They may proclaim at times. That's what James shows us, is that faith without good works is a dead kind of faith. And so what I would say is that, and this, again, this is my interpretation. You might disagree with me. I think that someone who is, who is abusing or is who persisting in abusive behaviors is not a Christian. And they have walked away from their marriage commitment the moment they started treating you that way. And so you have grounds to leave. Do not let the Bible be used by a bully to beat you up in your situation. That can happen all too often and it's sickening. It's sickening. And so again, I think it's important that we actually talk to people who are in the church. We talk to counselors who are uh, thinking the way the church thinks because that abuse word can get so hijacked in the world we're living in to the point where you can say, you just said something that I didn't like and so that's abusive. That's not what I'm talking about. And so get some counsel, get some people in your corner who will go to bat for you and help you seek safety because you deserve it. You deserve to live in peace, to use the Apostle Paul's word. I think that I, I wanted to give that caveat there that um, marriage might be possible, but it is not a solution because even in an abusive situation, like Divorce might get you to safety. Divorce might relieve the painful conversations you're having. Divorce might remove you from that person that you had so much trust in and they broke your trust. But divorce will not solve any of those problems because wherever you go, there you are. Wherever your spouse goes, there they will continue to be. The only hope that any marriage in this room has is the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, is the power of the gospel. To, to get us off of our uh, self-centeredness, to get us off of this like needing something out of the companionship of marriage that isn't what Jesus has for us. And, and to get us pulled away from our sin and our behavior and our, our wrong thinking and to say, God, make me more like you. 
it is, it is meant to be one of the most beautiful, sanctifying places you should go is your marriage. Man, that's painful some days. That is not fun on some days. When you realize, oh my gosh, my, my wife is, is like, her voice sounds a lot like the Holy Spirit right now. Any men in the room just want to amen that point right now? <laughs> Women as well. Man, we, we exist to help each other as, as long as we are pursuing marriage on this Christ-centered front. All of our marriages are designed to thrive, designed to be beautiful, designed to reflect God's beautiful love into the world that we are living in. And that's why the last point here is just to remind everybody in the room that nothing, nothing, nothing can break your union with Christ. There's nothing you can do. Man, for some of you, I imagine this conversation brings up, maybe, maybe you got divorced in an illegitimate way. Maybe, maybe, maybe the reason that you got divorced wasn't just named on that list. Maybe, maybe you know the sin that you are hiding, covering up. Maybe you know the things that you've done. And I just want to remind every single one of those situations, nothing can separate you from the love of God. I don't care if you're the adulterer in the room. I don't care if you're the abuser in the room. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Romans 8. This is a familiar verse to a lot of us, but I just want us to be encouraged as we're about to take communion this morning. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all these things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, against God's children, against the church? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep being slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The lie from the pit of hell right now is that you aren't worthy of this kind of love from God. And so therefore you're not worthy of this kind of love from your spouse. And you are, you were made in his image. He has chosen you. He, he, is, he is transcendent and above all things, yet he's imminent and close. And he's willing to say to his children right now, I love you. I love you. You made that mistake and it doesn't define you anymore. I love you. Nothing, nothing that you can do can separate you from my love for you. That is the voice of the Father to every person in the room right now. Whether you are filled with shame, filled with regret, filled with past decisions that you just hate, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And it is when we come back to that fact over and over again, as our vertical relationship with him is remaining steady, that then and only then will our horizontal relationships play out the way that he intended them to be. So if you wanna try and just muster through the marriage on your own, if you just wanna try and do this all on your own, you're missing the power of the gospel in your life right now. You're missing the power of the gospel in your marriage right now because nothing can separate you from the love of God. We're gonna take communion and it's the perfect verse for us to just have in our mind. Actually, gentlemen, would you just leave Romans 38, 39, 8, 38, 39 up on the screen while we receive communion because we need to be reminded. 
We need to be reminded. We have mistakes that we made this week. We have mistakes we made five years ago, 10 years ago that still haunt us. We need to be reminded of this fact as we receive communion today, not to give us license to keep doing those things, but to go and sin no more is Jesus' words to the woman caught in adultery. The encouragement that I would have as you come and receive communion this morning, obviously it lands different on every situation that's in the room. For those of you that are single and not yet married in the room, the Bible is clear. Your call right now, your singleness is a gift. It's not a curse. It's a gift. Use the season of singleness that you have been given to proclaim the gospel wholeheartedly as best you can. If you're single and you are desiring to be married someday, all the young single people in the room said, holla, you know, like raise your hand up. Keep enduring, but also keep working on the person that God has called you to be. Don't go and get your sufficiency or your value. Don't let it be defined by somebody else. You keep running and growing in the Lord, running after the Lord and growing in him. And that is gonna prepare you to be a spouse better than anything else you could be doing. If you're married and your marriage is flourishing, praise God, what a gift. You still, I'm guessing, every spouse in the room has another step they can take to be loving their spouse better. Husbands and wives alike. What is what is the way that you can pursue your spouse all the more, all the more? I also know with this message, there are a lot of marriages in the room right now that the divorce isn't even on your radar. But if you could be honest, you're pretty disappointed with where your marriage is at right now. It's hard. It's harder than you thought. You thought by this mark into your marriage, you wouldn't be dealing with whatever it is right now. And so come to the communion table and receive the fact that God has purchased you, that he loves you and that he's called you. And then continue to work out Work out your marriage with him at the center. I'll tell you this. If one spouse thinks that you need counseling, that means you need counseling, right? If the two are one flesh, what happens if half your face stops working? They call that a stroke, right? So if half your, half your flesh is struggling, acknowledge it and get some help. Swallow your pride, put it aside and work on your marriage because it is the most important relationship in your life. For others of you, you're divorced. And, and, and maybe, you, maybe you are relieved from getting out of a situation that you were in. Maybe you have regrets. Maybe you have pain still. I don't know where you're at. Let the healing work of Jesus, let his love for you stir you up so that you might demonstrate the gospel in whatever season you're in right now. It is so easy to let bitterness, to let malicious speech creep in. Even if a divorce stands on good grounds, it is so easy to let sinful things take hold of your heart. Avoid it, put it off. Live and root yourself in the peace of the gospel. Some of you looking around the room right now, uh, you're not married, you're, you're widowed. Spouse left and it, was, it didn't make any sense. And to you, I just wanna say, let Jesus continue to be your source of life. Your season is hard, I, I know it. Let your church family come alongside of you. Be encouraged by others in this room. We have, we have a grief group that would love to just come alongside of you to say, man, I've, I've lost somebody I love and I don't know what to do. We'd love to meet you in that space because it is long and it is hard, but I will promise you that God is good in the middle of that season. All of those things, all over the board, the Holy Spirit knows what you need in communion. So come right now and my, my ask would just be that you're open to be prayerful towards him and to become and rooted, come and be rooted in this passage as you receive communion this morning. God, we're just thankful for the great equalizing table that belongs to you.
that at the communion table there is there's no one better there's no one that's deserving God we recognize as we come and we receive communion that we are all dependent on your grace because we've all fallen short and so we thank you for your radical love for us that even while we were still dead in our trespasses and sin you have made us alive together with you so thank you for our union with you I pray that as a church would we would we see families uh, grow would we see beautiful families made we pray that marriages would thrive here because of because of you because of your Holy Spirit God I pray that you would have touched maybe a, a hurting part of our hearts this morning and left us feeling encouraged or healed would you give us maybe some fresh hope or fresh vision for the marriages that we are in, Lord, or that we aspire to have someday. Jesus, we love you. And it's in your great name that we pray. Amen.